Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And today's episode is going to focus on something that relates to climate change. You know, it was Earth Day not too long ago. And while I did not have an episode specifically for Earth Day, I thought it would be good to create something within that spirit. And recently I was perusing Scientific American, like I do, and I saw an article by Benjamin Starro titled, X-Prize winners use CO2 emissions to make concrete. And we're going to get to that. And Starro made some excellent points. I highly recommend the article. But that article made me think I should do an episode about concrete. We depend very heavily upon concrete. It is the most frequently used material around the world for the purposes of, you know, building stuff. It's the literal foundation for many of the structures we build. And the production and transportation of concrete represents a truly enormous source of carbon emissions, which of course are major contributors to climate change. And so I thought I would dedicate an episode to concrete. Now, you could argue it's not high-tech stuff. Most of the time, concrete doesn't have, you know cool circuitry or artificial intelligence or anything like that, although we will talk about the technology that does use some of that stuff. However, concrete represents a technological advance, and there are some interesting technologies like the ones that use CO2 to help actually make concrete that we can talk about. But first, let's talk about what concrete is. It is a hard material that is made up of aggregate, that is, particulate material that ranges from medium grade down to coarse. So think of stuff like sand or gravel or pebbles or crushed stone. These are loose, small, individual pieces of hard material. Now, obviously, you can't just build with aggregate all by itself. You would end up with piles of particulate. You'd have sand dunes or or 
piles of gravel, which is not terribly useful. So another part of concrete is a binding agent. This is essentially a glue. It holds the particulate together, and we go from having a pile of sand or gravel to concrete once we mix it with this binding agent, which gives that, that material strength. And the result is something that's a, akin to an artificial stone. But it's one that, when it's still in its viscous form, you can actually shape the stuff. Then it will harden, and it will hold that shape. So rather than having to look for a stone that's just the right shape, or having to employ a stonemason to cut an existing stone down to the correct shape, you could just, in theory, make one yourself out of concrete. Another important aspect of concrete is that it's chemically inert. It is not reactive to stuff, so it's very stable. You don't have to worry about concrete getting wet and then going all droopy, though with concrete, uh, water does actually make a difference. But we'll get to that, because water is all part of the system. Now, depending upon your point of view, you might argue that the binding agent for concrete has to be cement in order for you to consider the finished product actual concrete. Otherwise, it's something else. However, other people are a little more loosey-goosey with the definitive terms, and they will use concrete to refer to materials that relied on other binding agents to hold together particulate. Or sometimes they might give a little ground and and they'll call such stuff a, a sort of a predecessor to concrete. The discovery of cement probably dates back thousands of years when early peoples observed something interesting with regard to their cooking fires. So people would dig a hole, and into that hole they would, you know, build their, their cooking fires, and those high temperatures from the fires would cause the edges of the hole to kind of dry and crack and sometimes even turn into a bit of a powder. And when it would rain, water mixing with that powder would sometimes become a sludge that would then harden into a stone-like material. Now, one source I looked at for this episode was a paper titled Concrete History and Stories from World Scientific. Now, according to that source, these ancient peoples used a proto-concrete to start construction on the famed Tower of Babel, you know, the one that in the Bible was uh, began construction and then God said, hey guys, I don't dig how you're building up to the heavens, so I'm going to give you all different languages and scatter you so that you can't talk to each other anymore. But according to this paper, uh, what was happening was that the builders kind of ran out of raw material before they could finish construction, and then they just sort of abandoned the project. Now, several ancient civilizations used different aggregates and binding materials in an effort to create artificial stones. The Assyrians and the Babylonians used clay and bitumen, and you might not be familiar with bitumen. Uh, and in fact, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I should have looked that up before this episode, but hey... Let's wing it. Anyway, it's a petroleum-based type of hydrocarbon, so it's a. if you were to break down its chemical composition, you would say it's a compound of hydrogen and carbon, which is pretty common. In fact, that's the reason why a hydrogen-based economy is harder than what it sounds like. Hydrogen is almost always bound to something else, and frequently it's carbon. Uh, anyway, it's extremely viscous, and it's really dense stuff, and it can be found in pitch lakes and oil sands out there in nature. So, in some parts of the United States, it's referred to as asphalt, though the asphalt we use to pave roads is made up of other stuff in addition to a binder made from bitumen or a bitumen-like substance. Meanwhile, the Egyptians and the Phoenicians were using gypsum and lime, Gypsum is made of calcium sulfate dihydrate, and it's a big ingredient in lots of stuff, including drywall, chalk, fertilizer, and modern cement. Lime, the material, not the fruit, so you don't, you don't put this in a coconut and drink them both up. In this case, we're talking about an inorganic mineral made of calcium and various oxides. The Greeks also used lime, and they treated it in kilns to create burnt lime. Like, kilns are an important element of creating cement. You couldn't just use this material as it was, you know, found in nature. You had to treat it to heat in order to have the chemical uh, uh, transition 
into what would become concrete, or cement rather. We'll talk more about processing lime in a bit because that does play a huge part in the production of cement. In fact, many early civilizations would use kilns similar to, or in some cases exactly the same as, the kilns that they would use to fire pottery. The kilns would reach the temperatures needed to quote-unquote burn the lime, making it suitable to use as a binding agent. Most of these early forms of proto-concrete would cure in the air. They hardened upon exposure to the air. Or as Sven Thalo put it in an article in 1967, quote, lime that needs air to achieve strength, end quote. I like that phrasing. Then came the Romans, and while the Romans stole a ton of stuff from the Greeks, they also innovated quite a lot of stuff themselves. One of those things they innovated was concrete. Now, the Greeks had been using concrete a little bit, but not anywhere to the extent that the Romans did. And the Romans discovered natural cements called pozzolans. Actually, I should say that pozzolans might have already been in use pre-Roman times, but the Romans really went ham on the stuff. Mmm... Ham and pozzolan. So what the heck is pozzolan? Well, according to the American Concrete Institute, it is, quote, a siliceous and aluminous material that in itself possesses little or no cementitious value, but will, in finely divided form and in the presence of moisture, chemically react with calcium hydroxide at ordinary temperatures to form compounds having cementitious properties, end quote. That is a mouthful. But in plain English, it means that it's a material that, when ground up into a powder and mixed with water, and material that contains calcium hydroxide, it becomes cement-like. That is, it can bind aggregate as cement and form concrete. Actually, I should point out, in fact, I probably should have done this already, cement and concrete are not the same thing. They are not synonymous. Uh, Cement is to concrete what flour is to a cake right? It's an ingredient. It's an important part, but it is not the same thing. Anyway, the source for the Romans was a pozzolanic ash, which in itself came from volcanic ash and pumice. So the Romans would collect this ash and they would use it with calcium hydroxide to create their cement. When did they start doing this? Well, we're not really sure. It wouldn't have been any later than 150 before Common Era, or BCE, as there's evidence of concrete structures dating from around that time period. So it was definitely at least as late as that. It was probably earlier, much earlier. But there's just no Roman record that says, quote, it's 274 BC and we just invented concrete. Also, why are our years counting down backward? Anyway, I'm off to the vomitorium, end quote. And yeah, I... I, I made at least two dumb jokes based off inaccurate representations of ancient Rome's timekeeping and terminology, but I couldn't resist. Concrete would play an enormous part in the Roman architectural revolution. In fact, it was such a crucial component of that movement that we sometimes refer to it as the Concrete Revolution. This marked a period in Roman history of huge architectural projects, including the the famous Roman Pantheon, which was a, has a dome made from concrete that, from its shape, supports itself with no need for additional columns or other supports apart from the walls, which kind of act like columns. The Romans could build enormous structures thanks to concrete, which could be poured and then cured. Well, it's the, quote, process of controlling the rate and extent of moisture loss from concrete during cement hydration, end quote. That's the helpful definition from Cement, Concrete, and Aggregates, Australia. So let's dive into that a little bit further. Hydration is the mixing of water with cement and aggregate that gets this whole binding process going. And I realize this is skipping over the modern method of producing cement, but we will get back to that a bit later. Right now, we're talking about Roman concrete, which uses a natural cement with fewer controls in it, and that meant consistency was a little variable. Okay, so you make the concrete by mixing together water, cement, and the aggregate, which forms a workable paste. You put this where you want it to go, such as in a form mold. So imagine that you've got like a wooden box that doesn't have a top, and the the sides and bottom are all removable. So you put it together, then you pour the paste into that box, so it takes on the shape of the box, 
then you remove the wood once it's all done. But the once you're done bit is important. So the Roman concrete, like modern concrete, required hydration. That is, the cement needed moisture to harden further. Once dried out, concrete is set, and generally speaking, the faster it dries out, the weaker it is. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still strong stuff, and it can withstand incredible compressive forces. That is, forces that push down on it, you know, in an attempt to compress it. But it can also be a little brittle. And if the concrete remains wet, the reactions within cement will continue, and sometimes for years if it remains moist before drying out. It's this process of hardening that is called curing. It's not the drying out part, it's the hardening part. That's that's kind of the the end process is, is dried out. It's the keeping it wet in order to get the hardness and strength you want that's important. Uh, and in fact, concrete, part of that mass is made up of water. Chemically, what's going on is calcium silicates are undergoing an exothermic reaction as they interact with water. They release hydroxide ions, calcium ions, and heat. Uh, the bit about releasing heat is what makes this an exothermic reaction. Eventually, calcium and hydroxide ions saturate the system, and they begin to form calcium hydroxide crystals. Meanwhile, calcium silicate hydrate forms. The crystalline structures provide seed points for further ions to kind of glom onto, and the process can grow from there, but it does need water to continue this reaction. And as those crystals form, the concrete gets harder and stronger. Controlling this reaction falls to the rate at which water molecules can diffuse through the calcium silicate coating. As the reaction progresses, that coating gets thicker and it gets more difficult for water to make its way through, which in turn means the reaction begins to slow down. Hydration will continue as long as water can get into the system and as long as there remains unhydrated compounds within the paste. This process can go on for days or weeks or months, or even years, I'll be there for you when the rain starts to fall. As long as water can permeate and access unhydrated cement, the process will continue. Also, while the reactions release heat, this process itself goes through an interesting revolution. Early on in the hydration process, the reactive mixture will release a good amount of heat. The temperature will, will go up several degrees, but after the first no, 15 minutes to half an hour of the reaction, that temperature starts to drop. Then, a few hours in, the amount of heat it releases will begin to climb again, and over several hours it will peak, and once you get, like, 20 hours in, it will then begin to slowly drop the temperature again, very slowly ramping down. And what's happening is that the rate of the reactions themselves changes as things initiate, and then water continues to react with the cement mixture, then it gradually becomes more difficult for water to make its way to unhydrated elements of the cement. So the curing process can be done without having to heat anything else up. And in fact, it itself heats up. As we'll learn a bit later, that's kind of the opposite of the actual modern process of making cement. So concrete formation is exothermic, but the production of cement turns out to be endothermic. I'll explain more later on in this episode. Now we've got some more to say about the process of concrete forming, and we'll talk a lot more about cement in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Now, I mentioned that if concrete dries out quickly, it won't be as strong as concrete that was hydrated properly. But let's get a bit more detailed with that because it's not as simple as just, you know, drenching wet cement mix as you wait for it to cure. The amount of water you add makes a difference. The ratio of water to cement is important. A low water to cement ratio means you're going to end up with concrete that's very strong, but it's also very difficult to work. So in other words, the paste will be extremely viscous and you might end up with shapes you totally didn't intend and now you're stuck with them unless you, you know, grab some heavy-duty tools. A high water to cement ratio means you're going to have a paste that's really workable, but the overall strength of the concrete will be low. So it's not just how long the cement is kept moist, but how much water you use to do it. In our modern era, there are other things we can add to cement and aggregate to improve stuff like workability and plasticity and strength. But let's get back to the Romans, because we got to get back to them, because they're always roaming around. It's a dad joke. The Romans learned about the hydration process and produced a lot of concrete, at least for the time, anyway. They relied on the natural cement features of volcanic ash. Many of those structures exist in whole or in part today, which is really just a testament to the strength and durability of concrete. But there was a pretty long span of time between the fall of the Roman Empire and the widespread use of concrete in other civilizations, outside of some uses in building and churches and cathedrals. And it may be that the knowledge of producing concrete was largely kept in religious centers as far back as the earliest examples of the stuff, which gave the edge to the clerical folk out there over everybody else. So the Roman Empire trips on a banana peel and falls, and Europe plunges into the Dark Ages. Kind of. I mean, the history of the Dark Ages is actually really complicated, but for our purposes, the secrets to cement and concrete are largely lost until the 15th century, when the rediscovery of an old manuscript written by Marcus Vitruvius Pollio, uh, usually just called Vitruvius, rekindled interest. Now, Vitruvius was an architect and engineer way back in the first century BCE. He wrote a long manuscript about the principles of architecture, and it included a section on the production of Roman concrete. So as the Renaissance began to bloom in Europe, there was a new interest in concrete. In fact, Giovanni Giocondo used Roman concrete to build a part of the bridge called the Pont de Notre-Dame in Paris in 1499, which, as I understand it, is widely thought of as the first example of the modern use of concrete. And it was also necessary. The Pont Notre-Dame sometimes gets called the most ancient of bridges in Paris, but this is largely a matter of point of view, 
because it hasn't always been the same bridge. The Pont Neuf is the oldest bridge that remains in its original form in Paris, but there has been a bridge at the location of Pont Notre-Dame the longest. However, that Pont Notre-Dame bridge has gone through multiple collapses and demolitions and otherwise has been destroyed numerous times only to have been rebuilt. So this is a real ship of Theseus kind of thing we got going on here. Anyway, Giocondo used a recipe of Roman concrete as part of the rebuilding process after the bridge suffered a collapse in 1499 when the weight of houses on the bridge proved to be too much for the old structure. This version of the bridge, the concrete one, stood largely unaltered until 1853. So that was back in 1499, but widespread use really wouldn't kick into high gear for a few more centuries. In 1774, an English engineer by the name John Smeaton learned that by using quicklime as an ingredient for making cement, he could make better, harder cement. And later, in 1793, he discovered something else, which brings us to calcination. Calcination is the process of heating up a solid to a very high temperature, and the purpose is to burn off any volatile substances within that solid mass so that you're left with a more pure lump of whatever it was you started off with. Smeaton discovered that calcinating limestone that had clay content in it would produce hydraulic lime. As the name implies, this produces a lime that hardens underwater. Three years later, an Englishman named James Parker patented a hydraulic cement produced by calcinating limestone that contained clay. Engineers began building lime kilns, essentially ovens dedicated to calcinating limestone. So they were trying to recreate the effect that those ancient peoples saw around their, their fires, their food fires, years and years and years, centuries earlier. Now let's skip ahead to 1824. A builder named Joseph Aspton found that by grinding up chalk and putting it in a kiln with clay produced an even stronger type of cement. This is the type of cement we call Portland cement. It's named after the Isle of Portland in the English Channel. It's where a type of limestone called Portland stone comes from, and that stone played a huge part in British architecture. In fact, it still does. More people made contributions toward the understanding and production of cement, but the next innovation I want to talk about came courtesy of Frederick Ransom. Ransom wanted to find a way to consistently make the best cement, which required a new type of kiln. So the old cement kilns were essentially vertically aligned ovens. So think of like a chimney. You would load this stuff up with limestone and clay. You would have fuel at the bottom. You get the kiln uh, up to a certain temperature and you would kind of mix everything together. And in between loads, you might even allow the oven to go cool, which represented a, a pretty darn big waste of energy because it takes a lot of fuel to get kilns up to temperature. And once you get it up there, it takes less fuel for you to just keep it there than it would if you let it go cold and had to start it up again. And by high temperatures, we're talking up around 1400 degrees Celsius and hotter. The result of this process is that the limestone and the clay partially melt together into nodules that are called clinker. The clinker, once cooled, can be crushed into a powder mixed with gypsum, and then you've got your cement. A lot of stuff actually happens in this process, but I'm going to explain more in just a moment, so stick with me. Ransom figured out that one way you can make a better kiln is to go from this vertically aligned, you know, smokestack-style kiln to a tilted one, one that was almost closer to horizontal than vertical, but still on an incline. So the raised end, the part that's higher up, would be where you would feed limestone and clay into the kiln. On the opposite end, the lower end, you would have an opening at the base where clinker could pass through, and that's also where you would have your heat source that would get the raw materials up to the right melting point. And the whole thing would rotate, shifting material around and causing it to gradually move down the length of the kiln. It was a rotating kiln. So you would feed in your mix of limestone and clay at the top, and at that end of the kiln, far from the heat source, 
you would have the relatively chilly temperatures of between 70 to 110 degrees Celsius. At this temperature, any water content in the feed would evaporate off. Uh, This is also the end where any gases given off by the process would escape. The raw material would then sift down further into the kiln as the kiln rotated, and it would start to reach hotter segments. So once the material reached between 400 to 600 degrees Celsius, the clay would start to decompose into oxides like silicon dioxide and aluminum oxide, and the limestone would decompose into calcium carbonate, uh, magnesium oxide, and some carbon dioxide. So some of that carbon dioxide would then expel out the end of the kiln. But we would continue our journey down the kiln. And now the raw materials are reaching around 600 and 900 Celsius, somewhere in that range. And the calcium carbonate from the limestone would react with the silicon dioxide to form a material called belite, or B-E-L-I-T-E, also known as dicalcium silicate. So this, again, continues to sift down the length of this rotating kiln, And of course, it gets even hotter as it gets closer to the source of heat. And around 900 to 1050 degrees Celsius, any remaining calcium carbonate decomposes into calcium oxide and more carbon dioxide, which again exhausts out the end of the kiln. Then the material gets toward the point where the hottest section is, with temperatures getting up to around 1450 degrees Celsius. And the raw material begins to melt and fuse into clinker which sifts down through an opening at the base of the kiln and falls into a cooling tank. Modern rotating kilns recapture the heat from the clinker, and they use that as part of the way to power the system. So if you follow that process, you realize a few really big things. First, the chemical process to create Portland cement is an endothermic reaction, meaning you actually have to add heat to make this reaction happen. And we contrast to that to the uh, to concrete curing, that's an exothermic reaction. It gives off heat. You also probably heard there are a couple of steps there that involve a release of carbon dioxide in this chemical process. That's one of the big byproducts of cement production, carbon dioxide. But it doesn't stop there. We also have to consider the whole system, not just what gets produced through this chemical reaction. So to power the kilns, I mean, to to make the heat, we need fuel. And that tends to be fossil fuels. And burning fossil fuels also produces carbon dioxide emissions. So cement production contributes a significant amount of CO2 emissions, both in the chemical process itself of cement becoming cement and also the fossil fuels that you need to burn in order to create the heat to get this reaction going. In fact, global cement production accounts for about 5% of all CO2 emissions, which is a staggering amount for one specific process. And when you factor into the equation other considerations, like the fact you still have to transport the cement to wherever it's going to be used, you start to see how our dependence upon cement and concrete becomes challenging. Now let's get some stuff straight. Concrete is incredibly useful and and important. I mean, without concrete, there'd be no way to build stable structures beyond a few stories, which would mean that we would have to sprawl out even more than we already do. And I should also add that the fact we can build really tall structures like skyscrapers isn't just due to concrete. You see, concrete does have incredible compressive strength. That is, it, it can hold a ton of weight. Literally can hold a ton of weight. Tons and tons of weight. But it doesn't have great tensile strength. If you build a very tall structure and you only use concrete, you're asking for trouble. Because something like really high winds or an earthquake could cause monumental damage and even total collapse. But fortunately, we have a lot of people to thank for creating more resilient ways to use concrete. One of those people was a 19th century gardener in France named Joseph Monnier. He wanted to create a more durable flower pot. And he began to experiment with concrete set around an iron mesh frame. He created iron-reinforced concrete, or ferro-concrete. A lot of other people would build, literally, upon that idea, giving us stuff like the lovely rebar that gives more tensile strength to concrete. So, concrete is really handy stuff. It's one of the big innovations that has supported urbanization and industrialization. So it is not easy to say 
we should give up on concrete due to carbon emissions. However, at the same time, humans are producing a lot of cement. In 2020, the estimated global production was around 4.1 billion tons of the stuff, and every ton of cement creates 900 kilograms of CO2 emissions, which is around 1,984 pounds of carbon dioxide per ton of cement. So that would mean, in 2020, cement production dumped around 3.7 trillion kilograms, or 8 trillion pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere. And again, that's just figuring in the production of cement, not the transportation or anything like that. And keep in mind, 2020 might have actually seen more cement production than we did had there not been a pandemic. The 4.1 billion tons figure has remained fairly consistent since around 2018, but back in 2016, the industry actually produced an estimated 4.2 billion tons, so we're not likely to see this number go down anytime soon. And there are other parts of concrete production that contribute to CO2 emissions. It's just that the manufacturing of cement represents by far the largest contributor. Alright, so we know that making concrete creates a lot of carbon dioxide. We also know concrete is really important stuff, and that it's not as easy as just walking away from the material. When we come back, I'll talk about those researchers who pumped CO2 into concrete mix, and what that all actually means. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with Naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit slash hypergig for details. In 2016, Matt Mead, the then governor of the U.S. state of Wyoming, issued a challenge. It was a competition to find ways to convert carbon dioxide emissions into sellable products. So in other words, 
ways to take something that is generally a negative, that is the release of carbon dioxide, and to turn it into a positive. Now, presumably the goal wasn't just to create a product, but to lock CO2 into some other substance so that it wouldn't be part of the atmosphere. Now, Mead did this for a few different reasons. One big one is that Wyoming has a coal industry, but obviously coal is a fossil fuel and burning coal releases CO2. So the optics are not great for the coal industry. And it's hard to get around this fact that this particular industry contributes to climate change, and that in turn poses a pretty big threat to our way of life, which is perhaps the most understated way I could have put that. So finding a way to capture CO2 and convert it into something else and to make it a profitable endeavor would be a great solution. One of the reasons carbon capture initiatives aren't exactly proliferating all over the place is that they tend to be expensive, and often the output isn't something you can monetize. So it's not that we don't know how to capture carbon dioxide. We've got lots of ways to do it. It's just that we don't have a lot of ways to do it that in turn generate revenue. They represent a cost. So if you're literally pumping CO2 underground so that it's essentially captured down beneath the, the ground and, and you know, you're not making any money off that CO2, it's just pumped down there. It's actually going to cost you money to move the CO2 down there. And businesses, by and large, from what I understand, exist to make revenue. So generally speaking, businesses don't tend to follow pathways that lead to expenses if they can avoid it. And carbon capture is expensive. But if you can create a product, well, then you can recapture those costs. And if the product is good enough, as in popular enough and desirable enough, you can actually make a profit off of it. And now, with a profitable plan for carbon capture, you can kick things into a different gear. Now, what is environmentally beneficial is also economically beneficial, at least in the short term. And let me do a quick aside here. I want to stress wholeheartedly that climate change mitigation is, in fact, economically beneficial. It's just on a much longer timetable than most businesses focus on. Businesses tend to look at fiscal quarters or maybe a fiscal year, and mitigating climate change on that kind of timescale doesn't seem to make economic sense because of the expenses involved, and you're not likely to see any kind of you know, results immediately. But when you pull back and you take a much longer-term view you see that climate change stands as a threat to entire regions and industries, and you realize that climate change mitigation is the best economic strategy in the long term. It's just really hard to get stakeholders to look that far out, as we tend to be pretty short-sighted when it comes to stuff like money, and lots of other things too. Alright, let's get back to this XPRIZE competition thing. Out of the competition emerged a couple of teams with proposals for a green concrete strategy, and both teams had shown that by injecting carbon dioxide into the concrete production process, they could both reduce the amount of CO2 that was released, and they could make concrete stronger. One team, called Carbon Cure Technologies, injected CO2 into concrete wastewater, which didn't turn it into some sort of carbonated beverage, but rather created a mineral that, when added back into the concrete mixture, made it stronger. The second team, UCLA Carbon Built, injected CO2 into concrete as it goes through the curing process. This approach reduced the amount of carbon dioxide emissions from producing that concrete by 50%. Now that's just the production of that concrete, not the cement that was used to make that concrete. Keeping in mind that cement production is the real issue here, the reduction in greenhouse gas from concrete production might seem like a band-aid on top of a very serious cut. It's not nearly good enough. It's a reduction, that is good, but it's not eliminating the vast amounts of CO2 given off through cement production. The process does require CO2. That means that you could create carbon capture systems and pair them with facilities like a cement production facility, so the CO2 generated from cement production would go toward making better concrete. But honestly, these facilities produce way more carbon dioxide than you would need 
to produce green concrete solutions. You would really need to build in capture and sequestration facilities into cement production plants, but like I said earlier, those solutions are expensive, and they represent an economic cost to the companies. It's possible for governments to create incentives to reward companies for capturing and sequestering carbon, but outside of that, it's a tough sell. And even the political approach is super difficult, because there are a lot of politicians who aren't exactly swayed by the science of climate change. Meanwhile, there are engineers looking to find ways to reduce the amount of carbon emissions released during cement production, largely by fiddling with the formula. A big source of the problem is that the materials in the process of making cement have to be heated up to around 1450 degrees Celsius or hotter to form clinker. Finding alternatives to those materials that can react at lower temperatures would release the amount of fossil fuels that you needed for the process. Another solution is to look at byproducts generated from other industries, like fly ash, and use those as additives to reduce the amount of cement production that you need in order to make concrete. So in other words, if you're using fly ash to make up some of the weight of the cement, you don't need as much cement to make concrete, and as long as the finished product is as good or better than existing concrete, you're golden. Now, I also didn't really cover this, but with the hydraulic nature of concrete, the need for hydration, there's also a big need for water. In fact, the concrete industry takes up nearly 10% of industrial water use and nearly 1.7% of total global water use. So not only is it dumping CO2 in the atmosphere, it's using up a significant amount of water. And in some areas of the world, that might not be a huge deal, but for other areas that are affected by water shortages and droughts and have a need to lay a lot of concrete to build up their, their infrastructure, that's a huge problem. Water resources are precious. I mean, wars are fought over them. And an industry as thirsty as concrete production adds more pressure. One thing I wanted to close on was a cool technology that uses cement products similar to concrete as an ink in a 3D printing application. These companies are using enormous 3D printers to print buildings, and there are actually a few different companies doing this. One of them is called Icon. Icon has a large industrial 3D printer called the Vulcan 2, which uses a cement-based building material, which the company calls Lavacrete, as the ink. So with the Vulcan 2, it's possible to print out a single-story building. The Vulcan 2 can print walls that stand at a maximum of 8.5 feet tall, and the printer is 33 feet wide and can print on a foundation that's up to 28 feet wide. However, the Vulcan can also move down the length of a structure as it builds it, and there's no real maximum length that you would have. Like, you could in theory, build it as long as you wanted it to be. It would always be at max 28 feet wide, but it could be as long as you needed, assuming you had the materials and the land, like the level space to, to build upon. The printer pushes out the mixture at a rate of around 5 to 7 inches of wall length per second, which... Y'all, that's really fast. So by laying down lines of this lava crete, uh, each line is about an inch tall then you can lay out the outline of your wall structure, and then you start putting on the second layer. Each layer binds with the one underneath it. And so then the Vulcan 2 can print a building, or at least the walls, you know, the internal and external walls of a building. You would still have to provide the finishing touches, you know, stuff like doors and, and a roof and ceiling and that kind of thing. But this mixture has these special binding agents in it so that they do hold together. And using that approach, it's possible to build a house out of a concrete-like material within a day or two, depending on the size of the building. The rapid approach to building durable homes could be a huge game-changer and help communities address problems like homelessness or creating housing in the wake of a natural disaster. It's the plasticity of the liquid form of the material that makes it really possible to go through a 3D printer device. And the curing process makes it a practical structural material. And I have to admit, these are really interesting technologies that could serve as a huge benefit if put to the right use. 
That's a big if, however. It requires people to spearhead projects that aim for these goals. And of course, that does not change the fact that cement production is still an environmentally costly process. We shouldn't forget that while cement production is a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, it is also not the largest contributor. Transportation tends to be the biggest one, followed by electricity production. And so while it's important that we address issues with carbon emissions from cement and concrete production, we can't focus solely on that issue. If we quote-unquote solved it, we would still have a lot of work to do. So if we just look at one thing, that ends up creating a false sense of achievement whenever we make any sort of progress. And meanwhile, we continue to dump tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. The quest to create green concrete and cement has to be part of our approach to climate change mitigation, but it can't be the only part of it. Well, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff and our look at concrete. Uh, there's obviously a lot more we could say. I didn't really go into the various additives that have been developed over the years to change uh, the, the, uh, the qualities of concrete, but that would require a much deeper dive into chemistry. And y'all know, when I start getting lots of letters and numbers together, my eyes begin to glaze over. So we're going to leave it here for now. But if you have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, reach out to me. The best way is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 